Well, good morning, Salt Church. How's everybody doing this morning? Good deal. Uh, Y'all look good from what I can see. Uh, Hey, uh, my name is Michael. I am the pastor here. Uh, Thank you so much for coming. If this is your first time joining us, thank you so much for being here this morning. Uh, We hope you felt welcome when you walked in. Um, so, hey, one quick thing. I know Daniil already announced it, but Easter is two weeks from today, or um, Resurrection Sunday is actually the name, uh, but we call it both. Uh, so, hey, we made these invite cards. Uh, so what these are is just a way, it's a really good thing to invite your friends and family to. So if there's anybody that you'd like to invite to church, uh, you could point them to our website, that's fine. Or if you want to give them one of these cards, it's fine. It gives them all the details they want, and it'll direct them to our website. Uh, So, hey, grab some of these on your way out. If you want to use them, if you're not going to use them, don't grab them. Uh, So we made 500 of them. If one of you wants to be a champion and put them under every windshield wiper at Fry's, go for it. Uh, So, hey, no, we want to pack this place out on Easter. So if you want to grab one of those on your way out, that'd be good. So, hey, today we are continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And if you look at the Sermon on the Mount like an actual mountain, uh, last week we were at the peak of the mountain with the Lord's Prayer. Now we're kind of starting our descent down the mountain. Um, So the whole theme of the Sermon on the Mount is basically Jesus' guide to human flourishing. And if you've been with us the whole series since January, uh, you probably picked on the fact picked up on the fact that Jesus's guide to human flourishing is completely backwards if you compare it to our society's guide to human flourishing. Uh, so whatever our inward thoughts are, our outward actions, the things we do for religious activity, whatever, Jesus takes three chapters here to kind of cover the gamut of all of us. Uh, so this morning we're going to see how he talks about how we relate to the things of the world this week and next week. Uh, and when I say things of this world, this morning at least, it's going to be in relation to our money. Uh, and we'll see in these six verses that Jesus is going to use three different metaphors that will ultimately be the indicator of, and it'll answer the question of where your loyalties lie. Uh, so we have a ton of work to do this morning. We're going to be in Matthew six nineteen. if you want to turn your Bibles there. Uh, while you do that, let me go ahead and open us in prayer. Father, I thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, it's very clear from Scripture that you want every single part of us. So this morning, God, I pray that you give us clear eyes to see uh, what you're asking, uh, God, and just repentant hearts of where we hold things tightly. Uh, So God, as we open your word, change us, uh, make us more into the image of who you are. Uh, God, we love you, and we thank you, and we praise you. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19, uh, Jesus is going to use the first of three metaphors Uh, The first metaphor are treasures, so think of like a treasure chest. Uh, Jesus says this, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Uh, So right away it's pretty clear what Jesus is commanding us to do, and it all boils down to two things, the treasures you're accumulating, and then where are you storing those treasures? Uh, So first thing, verse 19, he tells us, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Uh, So those treasures, I would define them as multifaceted. Uh, First category I would say would be a treasure would be anything that's like material possessions. Uh, This could be something as as simple as like an article of clothing. Uh, Something as complex as like a vacation home in Malibu, something like that. Uh, Anything in our lives that we can point to and say that thing is a valuable. 
Uh, Second category is mostly uh, the things we aspire for. Uh, So for instance, we aspire for success. So we stack up treasure, which the currency of treasure in that are hours that we throw into our career. Uh, You aspire for a platform. So you give your time to build your own notoriety or brand Odd. Uh, We aspire for our kids to be successful, so we put a lot of treasures in extracurricular activities. Um, We aspire to have enough money when we retire, so we invest it. We lay up our treasures in 401ks and all that stuff so we can retire and be comfortable at an age like 70. For me, never. Uh, For me, like I aspire to have a healthy church, so the tendency is for me to take a lot of hours throughout the week and work uh, so I could steer this ship the best I can. Again, none of those things I just listed are inherently bad, so this isn't like a sermon where Jesus is trying to zap you of all your happiness, so don't worry. Uh, It is, however, like a pretty clear and convicting warning. Notice the danger that Jesus is laying out. He's saying, hey, be careful. Those treasures on earth that you like to store up, those things can be destroyed first by moth and rust. Uh, Let me give an example of this. Uh, My mother and father-in-law used to own a home. They don't anymore, which makes me unbelievably sad. They used to own a home on Mission Beach in San Diego. So literally, this house was like 100 feet from the bay, uh, about a quarter mile walk to the beach. And we would go there all the time, uh, me and Kristen. And then as we started to have more and more kids, that's where we would take our vacations. And here's how it would work. Our kids are little. We would get up. We'd go on a walk down the Mission Beach Boardwalk. And here's what would happen. Uh, Having always been in full-time ministry, I used to work a sales job. Uh, I had a sales job where I could make quite a bit of money. So here was my heart. As we're walking, we would point at houses that were for sale. Oh, this is listed for $1.5 million. Kristen, do you know if I just work a little more this year? If I make like 10 more sales, do you realize that we could buy this house? We could move there? Uh, Think of how great it would be, Kristen, to wake up with the sound of the ocean. Think about the weather in San Diego, so much better than Buckeye. The scenery, so much better than even Verado. Think about that. Uh, You want to know what reality was? Uh, we get back from our walk almost every single time that we'd be there with my in-laws. We'd come back from our walk, and there's my father-in-law doing some sort of maintenance work on the house. Uh, I think when he was there, when he owned the house, uh, he spent more time probably fixing the house than he did going to the beach with family. And why is that? It's because living on the ocean is awesome. Uh, But the salt in the air kind of quickly deteriorates the houses that are nearby. So what ends up happening is you work a ton of hours just to maintain the house or else the house will flip and it'll be unlivable. That's where Jesus is saying like moth and rust will destroy. That's where that comes in. Again, living in a beach house is not condemned by Jesus. But what he's trying to say, literally anything we own, anything we aspire to do, no matter how beautiful it is, it's eventually going to fade. Uh, You think of money itself, whether it's dollars or coins or you stack up gold bars. I don't know what your deal is. Literal treasure is susceptible to things like decay, loss, theft, destruction, deterioration. That's just the reality of what the world we live in. And it's not just moth and rust and death and decay. Jesus also says it's a thing where thieves will break in and steal. Uh, You know this if you've ever had your house or car broken into, right? Thieves come in your house. They're not looking at family pictures. They're looking to take a TV or any valuable. Uh, They break into your car. They're not trying to get the box of Kleenex that your wife has in the minivan. Uh, They're looking for anything they possibly can to resell for a profit. It's like a ransack of your valuables. 
Bottom line is this, Jesus is saying that anything that has any sort of value here on earth can be lost in one way or another. How it's lost isn't really important. It can, however, there's a warning, it can be lost. Uh, So the alternative that Jesus gives, instead of laying up treasures here on earth, he says lay up treasures or store up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Well, that's no fun, Michael. Like, nobody can see the treasures that I lay up in heaven. Uh, I think you might start to see the point. It's what we spend our time seeking that ultimately is what Jesus is talking about. So then it's like, well, cool, I'll stack up treasures for this proverbial place up in the sky. Like, what in the world does that mean? It's so much easy for us to see, like, earth. It's a tangible place. Like, everything is right in front of us here on earth. The house I live in satisfies me today. The car I drive gets me around today. Heaven is just like this concept. For most Christians, it's this concept of, like, we don't know what it is. Uh, There's some Christians that are like, I don't think I want to go there. It seems boring, which is sad. Uh, When I was writing this part of the sermon, I was getting four new tires on my truck. Again, money can just disappear, right? $900, like right down the drain on Tuesday morning. But here's what I started to think. As I'm writing this part of my sermon, I'm trying to think of heaven. I'm sitting in a tire store, uh, and it's like we often think of heaven as this place where we're going to sit on a cloud and play a harp. But think about it. Heaven, in reality, is just filled with things that go wildly beyond our own expectations. So I started to relate to heaven and my tires, Uh, I got four new tires because my old tires were balder than my head. Why? Because I've driven 60,000 miles on those tires. So the tires are deteriorating, just like the houses on the beach. In heaven, if I drive a truck, guess what? My tires will never go bald because there will be no deterioration in heaven. Uh, And if we think of eternity through a lens like that, where eternity impacts literally everything that we do, that's where as Christians we start to wrap our minds around the depth of the restorative work of God. The fact that God has this reward laying up for us in heaven that is so much better than anything that we can seek or obtain here on earth. And we get that, Jesus tells us, for eternity. Uh, You think of eternity, and it's like, man, that's a long time. It's because it is. Eternity means forever. Uh, But let's just put a time stamp on it to get practical. Let's just say eternity is 10,000 years, because the guy who wrote Amazing Grace says we've been there 10,000 years. Let's say you die today. I hope that doesn't happen. Let's say you die today. 10,000 years from today, in eternity, none of this, none of the things that we're doing in here will matter unless one of you gives your life to Christ. That will matter. Uh, But here's what I'm saying. 10,000 years from now, like not just the tires on my truck, my truck will mean nothing to me. The job that I had, the job that you have, the house you live in, the car you drive, the vacation you took, the amount of zeros in your bank account, all the treasures that we stack up, all those things are temporary. Those things have an end date. They will one day no longer matter. If we look at eternity, after you die, you're either spent with God in heaven or you're away from God in hell. And those two things are for eternity. So when Jesus is giving us warnings of what we treasure on this earth matters, it does. Uh, So in verse 21, he kind of closes off the first metaphor. He gives a summary statement. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Uh, that word heart for us, usually we just think our heart is like our affections and our emotions. Uh, for the people that Jesus was speaking to, it would have had way more of a meaning behind that word heart. Uh, when they heard heart, it was like their overall like nature or the essence of who they were, kind of like how we think of a soul. Uh, so when Jesus says something, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, he's not saying what you value is what you love. No, he's saying what you value, the things you seek, what you aspire for on this earth, that thing makes up who you are internally as a person. Uh, money is not a neutral matter. Money affects and reflects the inner being. Uh, commentator D.A. Carson said this, he said, the things we treasure actually govern our lives. What we value tugs at our minds and emotions. They consume our time with planning, daydreaming, and effort to achieve. Uh, so some things to think about in relation to this. Uh, how does money regulate what your desires are? Or let me put it better than that. How does money regulate what your goals are? How does money influence the decisions that you make, the things you buy, how much you give, not just to the church, but just in philanthropy, what kind of vacations you take, where you go? Money's not a neutral thing. None of these things are inherently bad, but the more time spent seeking those treasures here on earth or having those goals run the regulator of your heart, naturally what happens is the thoughts of the kingdom or work in the kingdom is naturally squeezed out. Why? Because we're all finite human beings. We get 24 hours in a day. You only have so much time to seek one thing. Uh, regarding our treasures, here's the reality. We spend time thinking about our treasures. We worry about our treasures. We measure other things and other people by what treasures they have. It's not hard to honestly just hear all this and take an honest look at ourselves and examine where our hearts are. It's going to tell you where your desires are. So Jesus isn't trying to twist your arm. Uh, like in these verses, he's not condemning wealth. He's not condemning clothing. He's not even condemning things that you own. He's condemning the love of those things. Jesus isn't condemning having money. He's condemning the love of money. So that's the metaphor of treasures. Next, he uses a metaphor of light. In verse 22, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So at first glance, this just kind of seems a little bit out of order. Like he goes from talking to, about treasures to now he's talking about an eyeball. What does this mean? Again, you have to hear this on how it was intended to the original audience. Uh, here, Jesus is painting a mental picture of a house. So think of it like this. If your body is a house, like your actual body is a house, the eye is the lamp that illuminates the house. So pretty simple application here, right? The eye must be clear just as a lamp in your home shouldn't be covered with a blanket or the bulb shouldn't be dead or going dead and it's flickering. Or the bulb isn't so dirty that there's like a film over it and it's dimmed down from its intended wattage. Where the spiritual application takes place is in this statement, if your eye is healthy. In particular, that word healthy. Uh, what is Jesus saying here? Uh, we use the ESV here. It's the word healthy. But other translations, it's if the eye is good, uh, if the eye is clear, uh, probably the best translation is the King James, uh, if the eye is single, 
Uh, and what does that mean? In the single, meaning singleness of purpose, or like your eye has undivided loyalty. So again, you see this metaphor within the context of not just this morning's passage, but this metaphor applies to the entire Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you start to see what the point of this section is about. This is not about our financial wealth accumulation. I'm not trying to get in your pockets. It's not about your ability to give money away. Uh, it's our value scale where we establish our life's worth. Jesus isn't talking about any of that. The theme of this section is that Jesus is wanting us to take an honest exam and look for loyalty and every aspect of our life has to be pointed towards Him. Here, He's just using the examples of treasure and money. So a healthy eye or a good eye or the eye that is clear means the eye in your body, the thing that regulates your body that is fixed on Christ, the eye that does not waver to things of limited worth, the eye that stays fixated on things of kingdom value. And Jesus tells us the condition of the eye, however bright your eye is, will result in two different paths. Number one is if it's good, your body will be filled with light. Uh, if you're familiar with Scripture, that, you, that metaphor for light is used all throughout Scripture. Uh, two things light symbolized were revelation and purity. Uh, so in John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Jesus saying that means that He is the one, the only one that's ever walked this earth that's full of revelation and purity. Uh, Jesus is revelation, meaning He's the revealed Word of God. Everything that can be found in God can be found in His Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus is also purity, meaning he walked uh, 33 years here on this earth without sin. He's fully pure. So for us as Christians, our body being full of light means essentially Jesus is saying it's full of me. It's full of Christ. Uh, this is such a fundamental concept of the faith that most Christians don't know. It's a doctrine called union with Christ. Uh, so the day you become a Christian, you are united with Christ. Uh, he is in you, you are in Him. Go home and read the letters of Paul. See how many times Paul says, in Christ, or by Christ, or from Christ. It's like almost every single chapter. If you're a Christian, you are united with Christ. Think you are in Him far more than He is in me. Uh, both of those things are true, but when you're in Christ, means first and foremost that you're eternally secure. You're secure, you're secure in Christ. Nothing can snatch you out of his hand. But not just that, being in Christ, you are looked at in God's eyes through the righteousness that Jesus Christ had. The purity that he had is credited to you. So all of Jesus' attributes, they're credited to you. So what's true of Christ is now true of you. Essentially, being in Christ means that you are filled with light, Right? And the sanctifying work that the Holy Spirit provides to you is what makes your eye good or healthy or single or however you want to translate it. Being in Christ gives you the ability to now grow in Christ, which should produce in you a change of desires of the things that you treasure. The more and more I study Scripture, the more and more I pray for wisdom, the more I seek Christ in my life, the more my desires change. And the things that I used to prop up as idols suddenly start to pale in comparison because my eye has a clearer view of who my Savior is. So the contrast is this. If the eye is bad, Jesus says your body will be full of darkness. That means no revelation, no purity. 
Uh, that happens through we deceive ourselves. Uh, to be honest with you, those in this room that are deceived are the hardest people to minister to. Those who think their bodies are full of light, yet it's not. Those who think their eye is good when in reality it's bad. Uh, those who sit in this room right now where loyalty to the kingdom of God is like a nominal thing for you, yet it, you think it's deep and genuine. Uh, here's an example. I, I wear contact lenses. Uh, at night I wear glasses. Like anyone who gets older, uh, my vision has changed drastically since I was 18 years old because I stare at a screen all day. So this is why those of us without perfect vision in this room go get eye exams every year, right? Why? So the ophthalmologist can dilate your eyes. He makes you put on those big goofy glasses, right? Covers up your left eye, covers up your right eye, change the views. What looks better, one or two? You never know which one to pick. Why do we do all that? It's so the eye doctor at the end of our 30-minute exam can tell us, hey, Michael, your prescription's decent, but it could be better. Nobody gets prescribed glasses at 18, and then you keep the same prescription until you're 40. Like you're 40, everything's blurry, you can't see anything. You don't tell yourself like, hey, man, I'm going to keep wearing these. No, you go get an exam. You see what can be fixed. The same thing goes with the barometer of our desires, the things that we treasure. We say things like, oh, I accepted Christ when I was 12. Haven't done anything since, but hey, I'll point at that one thing I did back when I was 12, and now that thing's going to just carry me through. I'm 40 now. I know nothing about Jesus Christ. Christ hasn't changed my life at all. My life looks just like the world. My natural bent is towards sin, but hey, at least I go to church three times a month. In order to see if your eye is healthy or not, you must examine your heart. You do that by allowing the righteousness of Christ to fill you. Here's the bad news. You cannot change yourself. It's Christ that has to change you. The gospel is this. You look at the Sermon on the Mount. You cannot fulfill any of those commands of Jesus on your own. You will fail 100% of the time. In Christianity, white-knuckling your way to obedience is the worst thing you can do because what you're telling God is, I'm the one that earns my own salvation. Jesus died and walked out of that tomb, and we will proclaim that two weeks from now, so that you might be in him, meaning that is Christ who changes you. You don't change yourself. So spending time in the presence of Christ changes your desires, but you have to be in his presence. You don't have to follow all these rules. You have to have a relationship with him. I promise you, if you seek that, he'll naturally change everything in you. Uh, the final metaphor Jesus uses is essentially what I would call slavery, but that's a word that we don't interpret in a biblical sense. Think of this word more as like a tethering to. Uh, so I'm sure a lot of you have driven down I-10 at one time or another, and you see something like this going on. Uh, this is like code for me, like I need to get in the other lane and not be anywhere near these people. Uh, in this picture, you've got like a red truck, I think that is, uh, being towed by a minivan with a really nice back wheel by like some rope. Here's what's going on in this towing job. Uh, wherever the van goes is where the truck is going to go. Like it, the truck has no choice. Uh, this is what Jesus is telling us in verse 24. Keep this image in your mind. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That red truck can only be pulled by one car. It won't logistically work in any other way. 
Zoom out for a second. Like, what is Jesus saying to us? He uses the eye as an example of the body. Here, it's an example of what your heart, like what your inner being, what your soul is guided by. Again, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And Jesus explicitly states, you cannot serve two masters. And in this particular verse, the two options given for our hearts is you're either going to serve God or you're either going to serve money. That's the context of what Jesus is talking about. So two years and three months into this church, since Salt Church started, this is the first time I've ever stood up here and preached on money. Uh, So this is your first week joining us. You caught us on a bad week, okay? I don't ever do this. I've never preached on giving. Uh, But the more and more I thought about that this week, I'm like, man, that's probably a mistake on my end. Uh, Let me make this clear. The things I'm about to say, I am not interested in twisting your arm to give to this church. Uh, Scripture is abundantly clear, and this is my philosophy. I would rather you cheerfully give a dollar at those boxes in the back than frown and write a check for 10% of your income. God loves a cheerful giver. But let me give you a personal example of how this verse, Matthew 6, 24, has basically been the theme of my life. Uh, During college, uh, I helped plant a church in Levine, which is like west of South Phoenix, uh, found out three years into planning that church that there were severe misdealings with the money. Uh, that was my first experience ever in ministry. Uh, I left there as a senior in college uh, with a total mistrust, not just of what churches do with money, uh, but just kind of church in general. I didn't trust any of it. At the same time, this is how God has wired me, I think, as a person. Uh, my natural bent is I like stuff. Uh, I don't like to go without. Uh, If I let it, my God is largely comfort. And money brings comfort. Money brings security. So that happens when I'm 21. Fast forward eight years later. I worked in corporate America. I'm further along in my career. I'm making more money each year. I'm married with one child. Kristen gets pregnant with twins. Uh, We help plant this church in Surprise. Three months into helping with that church, I'm on volunteer staff. The pastor meets me for lunch. Uh, He sits across the table and he says, Michael, I'm just curious. Why don't you give to the church? Immediately what happened? These walls just start to come up. All this defensiveness kicks in. All the stuff that I felt eight years ago, the hurt and the pain and the twistedness that can be church started to just rear its ugly head at that table. And my pastor gently looks at me and says, I'm not trying to get your money. Michael, you need to understand that giving primarily is a gospel understanding issue. And then secondly, it's a trust and dependency issue. For me, it was both of those issues. Uh, I left that meeting and I wasn't happy. Uh, Nobody likes to be called out. Nobody likes to be talked to about where they give their money. Uh, But pride, I had to swallow it. I went home, I told Kristen, hey, I think we need to pray about giving to our church. Uh, So Kristen and I prayed together. Uh, We we decided to start giving. So what happened? I started to set up the recurring giving online because I knew if I did not do that, I would not give. I wouldn't have the discipline to do that. I didn't know how much to do, so I was like, well, 10% seems normal. I looked at my pay stub, calculated 10% of my gross income. I set up recurring giving for that to come out of my account twice a month. Again, I don't think 10% is like a New Testament command. I, I more did that like, God, if you want me to give, you better take care of me, which is a foolish thing. Uh, I clicked submit. Uh, You would think in that moment that I would have all this relief, that I'm like spiritual, I just gave to God. No, 
I hit submit and it was like severe anxiety. It was like, Kristen, why are we doing this? Like, why are we giving that amount? Like, what are we doing? We could use that money for so many different things. We're about to have twins. Uh, I want to just be beyond careful with what I'm about to say because the prosperity gospel is a dangerous and it's a false gospel that you can hear by people who preach and it's absolute garbage. Let me tell you what happened in my life. Gradually, not immediately, gradually, I'm just being honest with you, that thing that was my master, comfort, aka deposits in my bank account, slowly that started to change. Giving is primarily a gospel understanding issue. Here's what that means. We don't give so that God will bless us. If that's the reason you're giving, stop. We give because God has provided for us and it's his in the first place. First fruit giving is a biblical concept, meaning that we give God what is first and we live off the rest. Not we live, God gets the leftovers. That money that you have is his in the first place. The common grace that God gave you to work a job to make an income was given to you by him. Literally nothing you have is your own. So first it's a gospel understanding issue. Second, it's a dependency and trust issue. To ask myself, does God really look out for me? Will God really take care of me? Will God really meet my needs? Will he really provide? Do I trust fundamentally if I were to give my things that God can use them for his good? Uh, I can stand up here and give so many examples of how from that day God has provided for me financially over and over again in my eight years of marriage, but I don't want to twist your arm for you to think that if you give, you're going to get I can say with confidence that if you give, if your heart is bent toward obedience, God will provide for you. Here's the deal. We look at a verse like this where Jesus is saying, we'll either love one and hate the other, we'll either be devoted to one, despise the other. Our natural bent, the easy thing to do as Christians is you read yourself out of that text. You say things like, well, God, I make, more, I make good money. I give a lot to the church, and that's awesome. Let me tell you something. It doesn't matter how much you give. If money or treasures is primarily the thing that you seek, you are fooling yourself if you think you're not being more shaped by the world than you are by the words of Scripture. If you stay on that road and you keep stacking your treasures on earth, not only one day will you be disappointed, one day you will blink and you will know the God that you're serving and it's not God. What Jesus is getting at in all three of these metaphors is he's talking about the regulator of your heart, the rudder of the ship of your life. It's steered by something. In this case, Jesus is talking about treasures and money, but it's steered by something. The warning that Jesus gives us is that we better be sure that the thing that's steering us is steering us to eternal rewards, not earthly comfort. I'm not dumb. Like, I know how much things cost. I know what it's like to be the only one who works in a home and I have four young kids. All of those things, if you let them, those things become your master. The thing that you let become your master is the same thing that's going to riddle you with anxiety and it's going to keep you locked in chains of bondage. You're the red truck being dragged by the van. If we've seen one thing from these last 10 weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, you've seen that the kingdom of God is so backwards in every single way to act as compared with the world. I mean, I had to give my money away to be free financially. Think of how backwards that is. 
I'm not saying don't budget, don't be wise, don't try to be successful, don't provide for your family, none of that. I'm not saying that. I'm pleading with you to let Jesus Christ be the Lord of your life and literally just trust with everything that you have that he's good, but to also trust that everything in you, he works as if you are one of his sons or one of his daughters, and he's going to get glory through the sacrifices you give him. So how is he asking you to trust him this morning? What are those things in your life that you just clench with this tight fist? You neglect to live with an open hand. Again, I'm not begging for your money. God has been beyond generous to Salt Church since the day that we opened. Sure, we want our own building. We want to plant churches. We want to bring more people on staff. All those things require money. But over and above any sort of ministry activity or cool thing that can make us a great church, this church is not the right church if I'm not primarily standing up here begging not for your money, but I'm begging for you to be free in Christ in all areas of your life, and that includes your finances. A life in Christ demands complete loyalty to him. So the question for this morning is, what do you treasure? Jesus says, that thing that you treasure, that's exactly who you are. Uh, We're going to take communion this morning. And uh, communion is a time where we get to remember what Christ did. Uh, The fact that Jesus Christ paid the ultimate sacrifice so that we can serve him, we can have life. Uh, We take the bread because it represents Jesus' body, and we drink the juice because it represents his blood. Uh, Communion's a time where we can do much like what Jesus is asking us to do this morning. Uh, Take an honest exam of your heart. Just sit and pause. What are those things you hold too tightly? Uh, What are those sins that need to be revealed of you? Uh, So hey, if you're normally with us on Communion Sunday, we're going to do it a little bit differently this morning. Uh, So the band is going to come up here and play some music. I want us to just sit and contemplate for a few minutes. I know I went a little bit long today. You'll be okay. Um, Before taking the elements, uh, think, what ways are you thankful for the sacrifice that Christ has made? Uh, What ways are you thankful for the fact that he ultimately made the ultimate sacrifice and saved you from your sin? In addition, what are those things that need to be revealed to you this morning? Uh, What are those things that you're holding with a tight fist? It doesn't just have to be money. Uh, What are those things that you're neglecting to give and trust God with? Uh, Spend some time in the next couple minutes. Sit in individual prayer and pray, contemplate that. Uh, In about three minutes, I'll come back up. I'll lead us together in communion as a church. Uh, As a reminder, communion is for Christians who are in good standing at their local church. So if you come here, you're in good standing here. Or if you're visiting from another church, you're in good standing at that church. Uh, If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are not a Christian, uh, it's not a thing to offend you. We just ask that you do not take communion with us. Uh, After we take communion, we'll sing one more song. If at any time during that song or on your way out, you need prayer for anything this morning, Um, You want to know who Jesus is. You have questions. Uh, There will be some people by the prayer sign. They would absolutely love to pray for you. But would you bow your heads and spend some time in contemplation?